vouched. It was largely the same person who votes for everybody, and all the all the ballots were for the same party, and it wasn't the conservatives. And this was in his attempt to show voter corruption and voter fraud and how this is wrong and bad and nasty. Uh, it was quite vitriolic. What he didn't say, though, is he talked about 100% of vouching and 100% of the votes and all of this. Didn't mention how many votes there actually were. So someone went in and did the research, and it was uh, 32 in uh, a candidate, an NDP candidate who won by 10,000. So could those 32 votes have swung the election? Quite possibly. But it's, it's, it's a way really of scaring people to talk about, do you want people without ID? They may not even be Canadians. They may not even be, they may be voting in multiple ridings under different voting systems. Uh, it's voter fraud fraud. Um, I'll ask a question because I'm disenfranchised. An easy one. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be an easy one. Uh, so I'm one of those people that's not homeless. Uh, I actually own my home, but I live in rural Canada. Um, as a rural Canadian, my driver's license has my legal name and a box number, not a physical address. Yep. So I need to have some other piece of ID. You all know me as Lisa Lambert, but my real legal name is Lois. So I actually have nothing, no bank card, all my bank cards, all my credit cards, all my utilities, everything comes in the name that I've always been known as, which is Lisa. I'm disenfranchised. Or you've been voting illegally all this time. I have probably been voting. <laughs> well, they are definitely trying to crack down on us. But I do think that if you live in rural Canada, yep. the risk of this is high. The other people I would think of is... And especially uh, combine that with some of the changes that Canada Post is doing about mail delivery, that could actually increase. Right. So there, I would get, I do have utility bills that come in my name as Lisa Lambert, um, but my husband has no utility bills in his name. Um, if you are not the one getting the utility bills in your name, you also have no way. So my husband's disenfranchised as well. Um, anyone who lived with us as a tenant would be disenfranchised. No one, so when our children turn 18, they will be disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. None of them will be able to prove the physical address that they live at, and I can't tie my legal name to my physical address. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I... We, I we simply don't know how many people are going to be in this position. As I said, 1% of Albert, or 1% of Canadians, about 120,000, use vouching. But there's also people, like yourself, who never use vouching, that just went through, and then uh, 400,000 that simply use their voter ID card. So now we're talking 5, 6, 7% of the electorate is now not going to be allowed to vote. So at, at what point uh, do we I've never to had to use that? vouching because I was the DRO. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knew me. So <laughs> I was allowed to vote for that reason. Yeah. So not only have I been illegally voting, I've also been illegally working for Elections Canada. Okay, there you go. There you go. Thank you. My name is Knut Peterson. Thanks for coming, Dwayne. Yeah. I was just wondering if uh, you could speculate on the role of the Senate in this uh, in this election, uh, this Fair Elections Act. Uh, they came up with some amendments. Uh, are you thinking that uh, because uh, Stephen Harper can't uh, do anything with the Senate, that they were allowed to actually do something? Well, I, th I think there's a, the, there's a couple things. I, I don't think that was what was driving it, is senators do by nature have greater independence. 
which is one of the reasons, in fact, the Supreme Court said that that was by design, that they were not to be elected. In fact, if you read the Supreme Court decision, it talked about making them elected would change the fundamental nature of the, of the Senate, which it, which it would. So it gives them less accountability to Canadians, but actually greater accountability to themselves to, to make changes. And the first draft of the, the amendments came from conservative senators within there. On the other hand, given some of the other issues around the Senate, are they likely to take a stand against Fair Elections Act, given the seemingly illegitimacy of the Senate? So there's a lot of complicated stuff. But I think the fact that they did a pre-study of the bill, instead of waiting for it to come there, shows just how important that they, they thought it was and, and will remain. And so even if it passes the House, it still has to go to the Senate. Um, the Senate... Um, could do all sorts of things and could delay that process beyond beyond June. We could be looking at the fall coming in. So I think there's still a lot more to be seen about the role of the Senate, particularly conservative senators in this process. And, and I might also add that I think a lot of the other amendments came from conservative MPs privately in, in caucus meetings. I think they, a lot of these conservative MPs, at least in Western Canada, still have some of those rural reform roots, which was always about empowering people and, and fear of, of parties and increasing voter turnout. And now it seemed to be an attack on democracy. So I think a lot of the pressure was coming from within as well. We just can't see that. My name is Tad Mitsui. Thank you very much for your lecture. Very, very <clears throat> enlightening. My question is, why this particular proposal uh, legislation is so partisan uh, discourse, while, uh, what do you might call it, electoral boundary, which mm -hmm. were we drawn recently, yeah. uh, was not? Okay, a couple things is election boundaries in Canada with some minor stuff in Saskatchewan, uh, I think has been nonpartisan for, for years. Uh, the United States drawing up voter boundaries is a very partisan activity, and there, there's a lot of gerrymandering to, to, to do that. Election boundaries, thankfully in Canada, have not been to this, to this moment. But what's driving the bill, I think, is, is, is two things. One is that there was a problem, and then they, they saw it as an opportunity. The problem was the stuff in the 2011 election around robocalls, uh, particularly in, in places like Guelph, where they did get phone messages saying, oh, by the way, your poll has changed. Um, there was issues in Etobicoke, uh, one of the ridings in Etobicoke, that was very narrowly fought. So there were some problems with elections because of this brand-new technology. So the government said, we're going to clean this up. Then comes the opportunity. It's like, well, we're going to clean this up. Let's throw some other stuff in here while we're at it that we would that we would like. And so I think that's really what's driving the size of this size of this bill. Is is there, there was a problem? It did need to be solved, but that problem could be solved in a 20-page bill, not in a 400-page bill. It's the other things that they're throwing in that that seem to be from the private playbook of conservative operators. 
Dwayne, you mentioned in your presentation about uh, the use the, the the use of political the voting list by political parties, yeah. and about the uh, concerns around what some of the changes might be there. Could you explain? Because I don't think uh, all Canadians understand exactly how the voting lists and the parties use them. Because that was kind of how the, the Guelph scandal became about. Uh, can you explain uh, first how? Political parties use the voting list, including voter sequence numbers, to see who voted and what the changes would be under this act. Here, here's a couple things. Just to give you a sense, we keep talking about the sophisticated database. Well, how do they acquire that? When politicians are door knocking, they're not just door knocking to get your vote. They are door knocking to get information. So if they go and knock on your door and there's a liberal sign, that gets written down, liberal sign, this house. If, if they see a conservative sign, that gets certain bit. Uh, how many people are in the house? How many are in voting age of the house? Uh, they get access to magazine subscriptions, and so they discover that you know someone that is uh, subscribing to the walrus is less likely to be a conservative voter than someone who gets Field and Stream, for example. Uh, think about the Safeway cards, and I know they've been pulled out, but I'll, I'll just illustrate this. Your, your Safeway card back when they had them, you get discounts. But when you scan that card, they're also determining what you bought, when you bought it, what day of the week, and that's all information gathered. And political parties are doing the same thing. If there's one book that you want to read about this, read Susan Delacarte, a book called Shopping for Votes. And it talks about the marketing of private companies and how that is now being done by political parties. And so this information database is very good. So they can determine you know, how many likely voters there are on a street. Uh, how many of those are likely to be conservative voters? How many are likely leaning liberal? How many are likely uh, doing NDP? And so they come up with different profiles of people. And uh, this, the, the information that they're getting is even more, will we'll add to that. More information is always better. So then the question is, why do you do it? Personal example. Uh, about 12 years ago, no, this would have been the 90s, my wife joined the Canadian Alliance to be involved in a nomination fight for a friend of hers. And he was in a nomination fight against Deepak O'Brien, who was our MP in, in, uh, in Northeast Calgary. So she joined the party. That was about 1996, 1997. We, to this day, continue to get phone calls from the Conservative Party of Canada. Okay, Because once you're in the system... You're in the system. We have moved since then. And it don't matter. They, they, they tracked us down. Um, my son, um, door knock for a liberal. So if you want to talk about political courage, you know, this is my kid, uh, volunteered for the Liberal Party of Canada, door knocking in Calgary. Okay. And uh, as a result, as a result, we get phone calls and mailings from the Liberal Party of Canada. He has left the house four years ago. We still get all this stuff. So um, the Liberals are not nearly as good. The Conservatives are very good at this. And, uh, and giving them access to this information, who knows how it's going to be used. So you ask yourself, in the robocall situation, how did they know who to call? They had that. Let me go to the Calgary Signal Hill activity. Um, Rob Anders realized that he was on the verge of losing, so he calls this bizarre press conference where he starts naming known liberals who have signed up for the Conservative Party of Canada. How did he get that information? 
Oh, by the way, he also made a mistake. He got the wrong person. Uh, but that's very McCarthy-like when you say, in my hand, I am holding names of known liberal sympathizers. How did you get that information? The scandal involving Dimitri Sudras, who was running the Conservative Party of Canada, got fired because he was funneling campaign information to his uh, fiance Eve Adams, who was an MP but running in a different riding. How was she able to get all that information and other people in the party were not? So there are those are just examples of internal conservative battles about the misappropriate use of the information in the database. Uh, do we want to give them more information? I was up here before, but <clears throat> I'm going to ask a question for someone else in a minute. But first I want to respond to what you just said about your son. Yep. Um, campaigning for the Liberals. <clears throat> it's even more fun when uh, I ran in 2012 for the NDP in uh, rural rural Alberta, just right around Lesbridge, and I actually went out to the little towns and they said to me, uh, NDP, eh? Uh, don't quit your day job. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, at least they would be more polite. <laughs> oh, they were very polite. Oh, well, there you go. Brought you in for tea. and. <laughs> oh, very, very nice. Yeah. Okay, Frank Toth has a question for you. And he says he's asked various times that he'd like you to put on your thinking cap. Please ask Professor Bratt why nobody talks about our terrible deficit and why are we borrowing $220 billion for infrastructure, health, education, etc.? Is he talking federally or provincially here? Yes, but it was, you asked seven questions on the phone. No, no, that, that's fine. If, if you're talking about federal... And that's an interesting case because the deficit is higher now than the deficit was in 2006. Okay, the deficit has gone up over the course of Stephen Harper. Now, they will say, with some legitimate reasons, that they were forced into an infrastructure budget back in 2008 when the financial crisis hit. Uh, they were in a minority situation. Um, the, the other parties were threatening to bring them down. Uh, we saw the proroguing and all of this sort of stuff in a, in a change in budget where they went through a lot of money and, and spent a lot of money. And this was all replayed when, when Jim Flaherty uh, both resigned and then later, unfortunately, uh, passed away. That is part of the picture, and there's a lot of truth to that. The other element is the GST cuts, going from 7% to 6%, 6% 5%. They knew at the time that that would take large sums of money out of the Treasury, and that's, in fact, what has happened. So it's the combination of those two things is why we have a larger deficit today than we do in 2006. Uh, the Conservatives would argue, however, that cutting the GST was a campaign promise that they made. Canadians supported that, and that if you increase the deficit, that will actually then lead to further cutbacks to make government smaller. So there's a longer game plan here. That's at the federal level. At the provincial level, it gets more complicated because we don't know if we have a budget deficit or not. Uh, they have a very complicated accounting system that was created to really hide what the deficit was. And uh, 
I vividly remember uh, the finance minister of Alberta gives a talk to the Chamber of Commerce in Edmonton and Calgary the day after he gives the budget. And so I'm in the Calgary Chamber the last two years, but particularly the 2013 budget, and Doug Horner's there. And the very first question he was asked was, what is the deficit? Why did you change the accounting rules? We don't understand it. This is in the Calgary Chamber of Commerce. These are CEOs. These are accountants. Um, these are economics professors. So not just media folk that under, don't understand math or dumb political scientists. They couldn't understand the budget. That continues to be a problem. And I can tell you, if, if Jim Prentice is smart, and I think he is, when he finally does make an appearance uh, to announce his candidacy, and if he's asked whether we have a deficit or not, he says, we don't really know, and that's why we need to change our accounting system. He'll have pulled a major plank out of the Wild Rose party. Having said that, let's say we do have a, a, a deficit. Let's say Wild Rose is right. We do have a long-term deficit, and I think we do have a deficit, by the way, in Alberta. The government is going to argue that what they're using that deficit for is things that people want, schools, roads, hospitals, clinics, and they're going to argue that the cost of borrowing is so low now that let's go forward and do it. We don't need a mantra about debt. Okay? That's how they're going to operate. That's how they're going to campaign. I think while Rose is going to campaign on you're, you're basically passing these things on to our children and our grandchildren. And that's the debate we're going to have about the deficit. And that's a good debate to have. And I've got my view on what the answer to that is. You've got your debate or answer. But let's Albertans figure out whether they want to go into deficit for these sorts of things or if they're going to say we need to live within our means. So that's how I'd frame that. Hopefully that addresses your, your question. Knut, you can have the last question. Uh, since we kind of got away from the Unfair Elections Act, uh, could I get you to speculate on... Uh, Kim Prentice running for leader, and if there's anybody else coming out of the bushes? A couple, couple things on that. One is, I never thought Jim Prentice was going to run. I thought, A, he's got a pretty good life right now. Um, by my calculation, he's probably making around $2 million a year when you combine being an executive VP for CIBC. Uh, banks don't pay their tellers a whole lot. They don't pay their bank managers a whole lot. But executive VPs, they do pretty good. Then there's the corporate boards of Air Canada and CP Rail, et cetera. Uh, those pay very well. So he's doing pretty good. I remember running into Jim in the Toronto airport because he was commuting back and forth to Toronto and Calgary. This was about six months after he resigned. And I said, Jim, you, you must miss it. He goes, miss what? He goes, my phone stops ringing. I get weekends off. I don't work as much. People aren't harassing me. I'm not on the front page. And I'm making seven times my salary. Uh, well, what's not to like? But I, I think he's got the political bug. It's, it's a bad disease. And once you get that disease, you can't, you can't get rid of it. And, but then I thought, he's probably got the political bug because while he left political office, he hasn't left political life. And so working for Enbridge pro bono, periodically giving speeches, I think he was, he was engaged in the process. But I thought his ambitions were federal. After all, he was a federal cabinet minister. He ran for the federal PCs. I thought, he's waiting out Stephen Harper. But I think he's made two calculations. One is, Harper isn't going away anytime soon. He's 
still in his, I think he turned 57, 56 yesterday. Okay, still fairly young, and he still looks young. If you look at Mulroney from 84 to 93, he didn't age nine years. He aged about 35 years. Harper, um, you know, uh, still looks pretty, pretty good. Um, and, or he calculated that even if Harper does go, let's say, in five years, the odds of the Conservatives choosing another leader from Calgary are quite remote. So if you have that political bug and the federal office has been denied, going to the, uh, being Premier of Alberta is still a very significant political office in this country, one of the most important political offices in this country. Then he has to ask himself three questions, which he's been doing over the last 30 days. Question one, can I win the leadership? Yes. Uh, I will say now he will be the leader. You can write that down. Uh, he, will, he will win. It will not be Ken Hughes, and I'll be surprised if anybody else runs. Uh, that's because they were all waiting. They were all waiting to see what Prentice did. He announces they're not going to run. Then his second question, which is the much more serious one, can I win in 2016? That, I think he's the only one with a chance. Will he? Uh, the odds are against you. They, the Conservatives are at their lowest ebb ever in this province. They're polling at 20%. They're 30 points behind Wild Rose. The party is in debt. The party is in internal turmoil. Uh, and they're up against the strongest opposition they've ever seen in 40 years. That's a pretty large challenge. Um, and then the third question, which is not an insignificant one, and the one that I don't think enough people have been asking, could he win a by-election in the fall? And there's no guarantee that he could win a by-election in the fall. If you're the wild rose, you want to kill the baby after it's born and to let it allowing it grow up, and you put everything into that by-election. And... Uh, so we'll have to see. But I think Prentice is a very deliberate man. This is a man who has no political scandals that have, have come out. This is a man who is able to walk between energy sector, the environmental groups, and the aboriginal groups. Those are three very different organizations that all respected Jim Prentice. But I heard he's been working the phones to see if he could raise money. And that's, that's the big item, and I think he can raise money. And so, uh, does Prentice have a chance? Yes. Will he? That's going to be tough slugging. You thought the miracle on the prairies in 93, this would be like the double miracle on the prairies if he was to accomplish that. But a Doug Horner, a Thomas Lukasik, a Rick McIver, a Jonathan Dennis, they would be the speed bumps. So, that would be my comment on provincial <laughs> politics. <laughs> Thank you, Dwayne, for joining us today. Okay.